On this episode of This Week in Linux, we got some big distro releases from OpenSUSE, Linux Lite, Crux, and Nopix, as well as some beta releases from Linux Mint and Bodhi Linux. The new Atari VCS is now available for pre-order on Indiegogo. LXQt released the 0.13.0 version of the desktop environment. The EU's general data protection regulation went into effect this week. Thunderbolt's networking is now available in Network Manager. Systemd announced a new interesting container-like feature called Portable Services. Later in the show, we'll take a look at some interesting security news, and then some rather unfortunate news from Huawei. All that and much more coming up. I'm Michael Tunnell with Tux Digital, and this is your source for Linux GNUs. Before we get started with the show, I just want to let you know that I'll be going to Southeast Linux Fest Conference, or also known as SELF, in Charlotte, North Carolina this year. Unfortunately, that means there won't be an episode next week for This Week in Linux, but I will be posting videos from SELF. I'm not sure exactly what I'll be posting yet, because this will be my first time going to SELF, but I look forward to finding out. If you're planning to be itself or just in the Charlotte area, let me know in the comments below or send me a message by going to touchdeal.com slash contact. Maybe we could do some kind of meetup or something. It would be my first time at self and my first time doing a meetup. So, you know, might as well add as much as possible in the same weekend as you can, right? <laughs> Speaking of adding as much as possible, not only will it be my first time at self, I've also decided to add work on top of that by doing a talk at self. So I'll be giving a talk about Kdenlive for like teaching the beginner side of things for Kdenlive as well as advanced techniques and custom effects and things like that you can do with Kdenlive. So if you'd like to be able to attend that talk, that will be on Saturday. And you can see the schedule by going to southeastlinuxfest.org. You can see the full schedule there. If you're not going to be able to make it, don't worry. I will also be uploading some related content to the talk on this channel sometime in the not-too-distant future. So in addition to This Week in Linux, I'm also a part of the Destination Linux podcast, where I'm a co-host. And on top of the, all the things I've already mentioned, Self would be my first time going there, definitely doing a talk at Self about Caden Live, potentially doing a meetup at Self, we're also going to be doing a live stream episode of Destination Linux from Self. So, yeah. Lots to do this week. <laughs> I'd like to encourage you to follow the Tux Digital account and maybe even the Michael Tunnell account on whatever social network you prefer. Whether that's Twitter, Instagram, Mastodon, or something else. Please do so to keep up to date with all the things that we're doing itself. And if you'd like to see all the different accounts that we have, go to tuxdigital.com slash contact to see uh, links for all the various different accounts. If you'd like to support the channel and maybe even help out with the expenses for the trip to self, you can go to tuxdigital.com slash contribute. There you'll find many options, including helping with the direct support via PayPal or Patreon. Or you can order the Linux Everywhere t-shirt. This is a shirt I made to celebrate the proliferation of Linux. It has Tux blended in the background of the shirt to convey the message that whether or not you know Linux is there, it probably is. So if you'd like to, you can go to tuxdigital.com slash Linux is everywhere or tuxdigital.com slash Linux is everywhere EU for the European shipping version. 
Open Source Leap 15 was released this week, and there's a lot of stuff that's been changed because it's been a it's a pretty big jump from the previous version, which which is OpenSUSE Leap 42 to 15. Anyway, so the updates to 15 are massive. They, they have new versions of GNOME, new versions of Plasma, and the new version of GNOME uses Wayland by default, though the Plasma version still uses XOR by default. And there's, a, there's a, just a ton of new things, but one of the most interesting things is that OpenSUSE Leap 15 is fully compatible with SLE, or SUSE Linux Enterprise, so that you can migrate between the two. So if you have OpenSUSE Leap 15 core, you can then migrate all of your settings and everything to SLE, which is typically mainly for like a server implementation, but it allows you to use Leap, OpenSUSE Leap as a like a testing grounds, and then you can deploy with SLE. So that is really cool. They've also added a new transactional update system called Kubrick. I think it's Kubrick. And it's a container platform approach so that you can have create like create new snapshots and then make updates to those snapshots whenever they come. But if for example the snapshot like the updates have a problem, they can be rolled back to a previous version. That's way you can get updates without having to affect your running system. But when you do reboot, if you choose to, you can get the updates immediately as upon reboot. And if there's even ever an error, it will automatically pull back to the previous version. So even if you do reboot and it didn't work, it'll just take you back to the previous snapshot. So that's a really interesting idea of how to do the, the uh, transactional update structure. Now this was made for servers specifically, but they have said that there are some people doing uh, have done successful desktop d uh, testing from throughout throughout the community to see if it would be possible to move the transactional updates to the desktop. And so far, they could be. So that's pretty cool. They also announced a new project called Uyuni. Pretty sure that's how you say it. Not 100%, but pretty sure Uyuni. And it's a fork of Spacewalk from Red Hat, which is basically a container system or a like a container platform management system. It allows them to have uh, provisioning of systems, deploying configurations, setting up virtual guests, things like that. And the interesting thing is that Spacewalk has been kind of considered to be roughly idle in the recent years, or relatively idle, I suppose. But... That's why they've decided to fork it and create the Uyuni project. And but they're also going to be adding some a lot of interesting features like the React web framework and even adding support for Kubernetes. So that could be pretty cool. And if you're interested, you can check out the link in the show notes. LXQt 0.13.0 was released, and there's a lot of updates to it. Um, all the packages are now ready for Qt 5.11. Uh, the configuration system was changed, so they moved all the configuration defaults to user share LXQt, which makes it possible for the distributions to make custom overrides in Etsy slash LXQt. So that makes it a lot easier for distributions to make uh, customizations and roll out a more uh, a easily more easily modified version of LXQt. They've had a ton of performance improvements and things like that. And they've also added some application updates and even 
took a couple of applications like QPS and ScreenGrab under the LXQt umbrella, so they've joined the project. But one of the things I liked about the updates for some of the applications is they added a, a the batch renaming feature in the PCMan FM-Qt file manager, and it, I use I use batch renaming a lot. I didn't think I would the first time I found batch renaming, but it's really useful for organizational purposes, so it's really nice for them to see that they've added that to their file manager. So anyway, if you're interested in checking out LXQt 0.13 or 13, then check out the link in the show notes. we got some interesting news from the GNOME development team about future releases of GNOME and, well, specifically Nautilus, and that they were talking about removing the ability to launch binaries and scripts directly from Nautilus. Now, this, naturally, the community was not too happy with this decision. But this is what the team said when they made this announcement, or this commit, anyway. He says that now the desktop is gone, or is long gone, referring to the Nautilus removing of the desktop features, launching binaries and desktop files from within Nautilus is not as useful. Unsurprisingly, the community provided many scenarios where the ability to run binaries and scripts from Nautilus is, in fact, needed with various specific workflows. It's interesting because they did they did come back with saying they recognize there there is something that they need to continue to use because of various use cases. One of the things they said was a few cases appeared that we need to support, specifically for enterprise and content creators. This also shows that it's hard to predict cases like these as some complex setups might be needed for specific workflows. Sure, complex setups, or you know, App images, and like a, a variety of other things. App images itself should have been enough to go, let's not remove this. But anyway, uh, thankfully they have decided to revert the decision, and you will still be able to use Nautilus to launch programs and scripts. Um, for now, at this point, I don't know. I'm not really sure why they would consider removing it in the first place, but it's not going to be removed, and that's good. So you may have heard of the GDPR, or the General Data Protection Regulation, more than likely not by choice, but mainly by a plethora or an onslaught of emails about privacy policies that from various different websites. The GDPR is the General Data Protection Regulation, and it is a very important regulation because while it has been passed by the European Union, it actually affects not everyone, not every website, but a significant portion of the world because the regulation is not specific to EU-based companies or organizations or whatever. It actually affects anyone who does who provides any kind of services or products or anything like that to EU citizens. So if you are based in the US but you make you know, you provide services to someone in the EU, then you're automatically, you have to be compliant to the GDPR. Now, the GDPR was passed in 2016, but it came into effect on May 25th of this year. So, it's a wide-reaching topic that I, I would probably have to do a specific video about, which I do plan to do. But for the for like the gist of it is that it's more of a privacy information and privacy control for the user. Now there are some aspects of it that aren't going like they're it's going to change the way most websites work in the sense that 
it will it it will give the ability to ch- see the access of the data that a, a website has about you, to be able to request the removal of that data, and some other things like that. Now there are some you know there are some specifics that are don't actually require the companies or organizations to absolutely remove the data. So if, for example, they say here's the data and here's why we need to keep it, then they can keep it if, as long as they have a purpose for it. Now, if you go to, you know, some kind of grocery store and they, and they ask you for your email address or your phone number for no apparent reason, well, that would be a bad idea for them to do. So, because that's just essentially worthless to sell you things and advertise to you. And that would be against the GDPR. So there are some aspects of the GDPR that are that are good, that have very good potential for, for benefits, and there's some little bit of a negative because like within like a couple of days, Google received like thirty five thousand removal requests from politicians and government officials throughout the EU. It's like, yeah, we kinda saw that coming. So unfortunately, there are some good things and there are some bad things. And this show is not long enough to cover the entire topic by itself. So be sure to subscribe if you want to get if you want to see the full video about that. This week we got some interesting news for some betas that are coming out. Or actually by the time this airs, will be both both will be out. This this video is being recorded on Saturday, June second, but on Monday, June fourth, Linux Mint will release the first beta or the I'm not sure if they're how many betas they're gonna have, but at least the first beta of Linux Mint 19, which will be coming with the Cinnamon 3.8 desktop environment and the Mate 1.20 desktop environment, based on Ubuntu 18.04 LTS. So the full new whole new series of Linux Mint is coming out, and they said that the fir- the beta will be on June 4th, but they haven't given a date of the actual release but they said at the end of June. So just to clarify my prediction about it being a couple months after and specifically at the end of June was correct. All I'm saying. Anyway, also available is the beta for Bodhi Linux 5.0.0, which is also based on 18.04 LTS. And this is using the Moksha desktop, which is a fork of Enlightenment. So if you're interested in having like a a lightweight, unique experience uh, desktop inter- inter- environment, then definitely check out Bodhi Linux. And if you want to check out the the brand new goodie stuff, that beta is available today for the recording, as well as of course in the future. So Linux Mint 19, Bodhi Linux 5.0, and let me know what you think in the sh- uh, comments below. I almost said show notes for letting me. Anyway, comments. That's that's how that works. This week, the Atari VCS finally has like a list of specs been pushed out with the the Indiegogo campaign. We know a lot about what what operating system is going to run on it, the hardware that's going to run it, like the CPU and everything. Uh, there's some little bit of questions still involved in this, but. Overall, we have a lot of information that we used to have almost nothing, so it's really nice to see that. And the reaction from the community has been absurd. So, for example, there's only been a couple of days since the Indiegogo was started, and they had a goal of $100,000. 
They're now currently at $2.3 million, so safe to say it's successful. And if you're interested in getting in getting one of the Ataris, I think the, the, the early bird special is a fair deal, now based on the hardware. Some of the hardware would uh, is kind of a little sketchy in like how powerful it is. So, for example, they have a Ryzen uh, uh, the R7. I'm pretty sure it's the R7 uh, processor. And we don't know exactly... Uh, I'm not sure if it's the right R7. Anyway, they have a, it's a, the processor, we don't have a full exact specs on the processor. We do know it has uh, 4 gigs of RAM. So it has some good hardware, but also not the optimal hardware we were hoping for for like a specific console. Uh, well, I was hoping for like an ultra-powered console, but uh, it's more of like a mid-level, mid-tier type console. I think it is the R7, now I think about it. Anyway, can't confirm that at this moment, but I'm eh, fairly sure it's the R7. So the Early Bird Special has the the Atari VCS uh, Norm Onyx, I think it's the Onyx. That one is a, a one one ninety nine or two hundred dollars, and that's a decent price for the hardware. So that one's actually fair, but it doesn't come with controller or the joystick, which is kind of unfortunate because uh, you kind of really need uh, some. Uh, the whole package would be nice to have it, but okay, it's not really necessary because you can use. What's really cool about it is that you can use any controller you want to that supports Bluetooth or supports USB. So technically, you could just get the box and use whatever controllers you already have. But if I'm going to buy this kind of thing, I would kind of want to at least get the joystick and probably a controller too because I'd like just want to try it out kind of thing. Um, so the Atari is going to come with, I think they said 100 classic Atari games by default pre-installed. Then you can also get some other ones in like a downloading store approach. They also said that it would be possible to buy modern gaming titles. We don't know exactly, like, how far, like, how powerful the game uh, could be, like, if it's going to be, like, a AAA or anything like that. Because there's not really been any, you know, benchmarking or anything because no one has one yet. That all the testing has been is in-house by the Atari d d prototype development. But they did say it's going to be based on Ubuntu, which is interesting. And that they're going to support changing the operating system. You can put whatever you want. They say you can even multi. You, you can multi-boot. They didn't really say if it's going to be like a dual booting or a virtual solution, but you're going to be able to use multiple operating systems, which I assume more of a dual booting approach. But you can even load homebrew games if you want to, like side loading them. And you could change. You can manipulate the existing platform to make your own unique platform. So there's there's a lot of cool aspects to the. The, the, the this the idea of the Atari VCS that I'm tempted I'm not sure yet but I'm tempted to get one and uh, like I want it to be the best like Linux based console possible but the specs are kind of like they feel a little underpowered but maybe I just you know don't know to the like the degree of how well they work together and stuff like that uh, anyway I hope they worked well. Per they work perfectly together and everything, because I want there to be a Linux-powered console that can bring in the mainstream 
appeal to Linux gaming, that would be amazing. So hopefully the Atari VCS can be that platform. And uh, if you're interested, check out the Indiegogo. You can find a link in the show notes for episode 29. TextSuggest is a really cool-looking solution to text completion and text expansion for the Linux desktop. I haven't tried it myself yet, but it does look worth trying, so in the future, maybe I'll do a video on it. But the the ability the, the what this provides is the ability to type in a couple of letters, even fuzzy matching of a couple of letters, hit tab and give you options to complete that te- that text to whatever you want. So, it could be like a dictionary completion. It can also be custom completions that you could say you could type in a couple letters hit it to activate and then choose like for example let's say you want to do um, your email address and you say your your name then the at symbol then the domain you could do like the first letter the at symbol and then the letter of the first letter of the domain name and just hit tab and it give you the option to just complete that out that is very cool so that's something I've been wanting to see for a long time on the Linux desktop. They, there used to be one that was a little, um, that was pretty cool, but didn't go as far as I wanted, and it wasn't as easy to use. So it's a nice. This is like a a really cool uh, approach to this, but it gets even better. So they say that it works with any GUI app on X11, and now it doesn't work with Wayland yet. They are work, looking into making it work with Wayland, but for now, it's just an X11 thing. What's really awesome about this is it has support for executing mathematical equations and commands. Now, that's the mo- that, that part is the most powerful thing that is interesting to me. You can use the text expansion to send, to actually run commands in the background and then put the output of the command into the text expansion aspects. So, like, for example, if you wanted to output the you know ls you know basically just that the listing of ls of a folder you can just do that through text suggest and just it'll output the the data that you created from the command very awesome and the potential for that is huge you can make custom scripts that running through text suggest can like automate you know really big things in a very quick way it's just a, a Anyway, it's something worth checking out, and I do plan to do that in the future. Uh, the reason I haven't done so yet is that it has a custom installation script that does an auto in, like an auto install for dependency resolution and stuff like that, and I just haven't had time to like look through the script how it works. So I didn't want to, you know, tell people that it's good to go because I haven't tested it myself yet. But it looks very cool and has a lot of potential. And I can't wait to try it out. So if you also can't wait, then check out the links in the show notes. So recently, a crypto miner was found in the Snap Store attached to a couple of snaps. And this is kind of like a, a, a expected that this was going to happen eventually. But in the way to see how, how it's going to be handled by the by Canonical was also something that I was, look, I was curious to see what was going to happen. They found like community found a crypto miner in attached to one to a snap a couple of snaps mostly games and i think there's like another application but mostly games and the interesting thing is that the developer of that snap was not the developer of the applications or the games themselves so it was just someone who packaged it and then put it in the store 
and they they had a thing where they were saying that they wanted to use the crypto miner to make money for the development of the snaps, I guess, because they they implied that they were the developer of the, of the of the games, but they weren't really. But another thing that's also interesting is that they they claimed that they didn't mean to li- mislead anyone about this particular crypto mining feature of a snap fe- feature of a snap. But the reason why that's not likely is because they purposefully renamed the crypto miner to the to read as the name system D instead of what it really is, which is absolutely a guarantee that they were trying to mislead people. So canonical basically uh, immediately jumped at it as soon as they found out that this was a this was there within like an hour they took it down and started working on fixing it. And the crypto miner was only in the store for about a week or so. So it wasn't about a week, and I'm not really sure exactly, but it wasn't that much. So that it was very quick for this to be discovered and re- replaced. So what they did was basically take out the crypto miner from the snap and put the snap back into the store. So if people wanted to use to play the games and things like that, they still could. They just also wouldn't have a crypto miner on it. So it was interesting to see the way they handled this particular thing because it would be uh, potentially a negative for them to just completely remove the snap, I, I guess, because it's kind of like the way that, you know, Amazon removed books, like books from their Kindles and stuff like that, which was weird. But um, since the the apps were not made by the person who made the snaps, there's really no, like, copyright aspects to them having control over the snaps. So that makes sense why the, the, the canonical, you know, just took those over. And another thing about this particular situation is that the snaps have different levels of confinement. And this particular snap had a strict confinement, meaning it had less review before it got into the snap store. But the reason it has less review is because it has a lot more con- confinement in the snap itself so that it wouldn't be able to affect your system or other snaps. So the only thing it could do is utilize the crypto miner kind of thing. So still negative, but not damaging. And that's why the review process isn't as strict because the confinement itself is strict. Now, if, for example, they tried to do this with a classic confined snap, those have a lot more integration with the system, and because of that, there is a much vigorous review process to get a classic snap into the snap store. So the canonical team would have seen that if they were to try to do that. That explains like how they kind of got away with this for the little bit of time that they did. So it's interesting to see about you know this this happening and please let me know your thoughts on this whether you know whether you agree with them leaving it in the snap store modified to not have the crypto miner or not or what do you think about the the process that they went to solve the problem and things like that anyway just let me know what you think in the show notes uh what i did it again i did it again in the comments okay it's the comments we got some news about Thunderbolt networking available in Network Manager. This is very cool because it means that you can enable peer-to-peer or P2P network connections between multiple computers. Well, specifically these two computers through a Thunderbolt. Theoretically, Thunderbolt has daisy chaining, so maybe. But anyway, if you connect two computers directly via Thunderbolt, it would be able to use transferring from one computer to the other through the Thunderbolt structure, which uses the PCI bus, which means basically super fast transfers. So Network Manager 1.11.3, 
and Linux kernel 4.15 would be required to try this, and also a Thunderbolt, Thunderbolt port on your computer. But it has been tested on a, on a variety of things. Um, the, the, the writer of this article about this, the development of the work has tested it for Fedora to Fedora, and Fedora to Mac OS, and even to Windows. And, it, and successfully tested it, to be specific. So this is very cool, because Thunderbolt is a really cool uh, system, and the fact that it uses the PCI bus to do it makes it ridiculously fast. So the idea that Network Manager can utilize Thunderbolt networking means that you can just essentially plug in a Thunderbolt from one computer to the other, and will automatically create a connection between the two without having to set up any kind of like file share structure sys servers or anything like that. So that's very cool, and I can't wait to try it out. But first, I'll need to get a computer with Thunderbolt, and then Thunderbolt cord, and then hardware that is supported to... Anyway, if you are able to, to try it out, let me know how it worked for you. Up next in the show is Slipstream, which is a retro-inspired racing game. It has 20 different tracks, three game modes, original soundtrack, uh, five different cars to play with. You can even have like manip- like modifications to emulate different old monitors and TVs, like how they looked back in the day. So that's, that's pretty cool, actually. And it, currently there's no multiplayer, but they're working on local co-op multiplayer, and hopefully in the future they might do online. And they haven't really answered that one, but hopefully because that, that would probably make this game even more fun. Uh, but what's really cool about this particular game is that this game was developed exclusively on Linux using free software. Now, it used, they said that they used for Krita, uh, Blender, and GIMP for the graphics, and they used for their their programming. They used uh, IntelliJ for the the coding of the of the game and things like that. So, like, it's, that's just really cool that they used. You know, they they built this game. V- for Linux with Linux, and the only exception to the you know the Linux part is the music was created by the the, the game was made by Ansdor, which is his pseudonym, and but the music was not made by him. So he basically the game was made exclusively by Ansdor, other than the um, the music itself. So that is very cool. And if you'd like to check it out, it's about $10, roughly, on Steam. And uh, let me know if you think, if you do try to get it out, because it, it looks pretty fun. Like a, like a 1980s-style racer, racer game. We got a new release of Crux 3.4. This release has a lot of updated uh, packages and things like that using Linux 4.14. Uh, but th- if you haven't heard of Crux, Crux is a very unique uh, distro. But what's also interesting is that this was actually the inspiration uh, for the creation of Arch Linux. So if you're a fan of Arch, you should definitely check out Crux as you know, at least as like an inspirational homage type of thing. So check out the links in the show notes. And also this week was a update to Nopix. Now. 8, 8.2 was released for Nopix. Unfortunately, there's not. I couldn't find any show notes to tell you exactly what changed. Like I can, 
a little bit they got the new version of the Linux kernel is 4.16. They updated to Plasma 5.12.4, and they're using Qt 5.10. Uh, that's as much as I could find, unfortunately, because uh, there doesn't seem to be any show notes for or release notes for the Nopix uh, 8.2 release. So if you can find that, please leave a link in the, sh- in the uh, comments below. I would love to see you know more about what happened in the newest version. But anyway, if you'd like to check them out, you can find the links in the show notes for Crux 3.4 and Nopix 8.2. So the new version of Linux Lite 4.0 was released. And 4.0 is based on Ubuntu 18.04 LTS. They've adopted the swap file implementation that Ubuntu 18.04 is using. They've added compositing, enabled by default out of the box. And they've added support for the XFCE Pulse Audio plugin to be added to the system tray. And there's a lot of cool things. They've, they've added some new applications for you know making things easier to use. For example, Time Shift 18.4 was added for system backups. And Menu Libre for managing entries in the application menu. If you haven't checked out Menu Libre before, uh, you can find a video I did about Menu Libre on the channel. So I'll put that in the cards and in the video description if you like. Um, but it's a very, very good application for editing des- dot .desktop files and things like that. So one of the potentially negative things that people might not like is that this is the first version of Linux Lite that will not be providing 32-bit ISOs. So this will be a 64-bit only ISO release. Um, that might bother some, but what I really like about this version is the change to the theming of Linux Lite in that they're using Adapta and the Papyrus icons for a more modern, flat design approach, which actually looks pretty good. So if you're interested in checking out Linux Lite, try Linux Lite 4.0 and link in the show notes. Up next in the show is Ubuntu 18.10's desktop plans. They've announced a lot of interesting things coming. First up is the new Communa theme, which will be available by default in Ubuntu 18.10, which is like a, a more modern update to the old ambiance theme, which is very much needed, and it looks much better, so well done on that. They've also talked about adding Android integration via GS Connect, which use, is a GNOME Shell extension that integrates with KDE Connect on the Android device. If you haven't tried out KDE Connect, you should definitely do that because it's awesome. Um, I'm going to make a completely separate video just for KDE Connect. That's how good it is. Check it out. Anyway, they've also added some improvements for Snaps because they're going to be they're, they're, they've already currently started working on making it load faster. They they have improved the loading times of Snaps now, but they're working on in, increasing that speed performance even more. And they've also just said that they're working on the theming issues that Snaps have which has been a long, one of the long-standing issues that people have had with Snaps, so it's very nice to see that they're you know, correcting that. Also, they're making it in the next version of the uh, 1810's GNOME Control Center will have support to have Thunderbolt settings. So, as we talked about previously, Thunderbolt is pretty cool, so that's very nice to see. They've also added fingerprint unlocking, so if your computer has fingerprint uh, fingerprint scanner on the on the computer that you can use that to unlock your laptop, and they're going to be improving the multi monitor support. So, if you're interested in checking out the Ubuntu 18.10 uh, 
uh, desktop plans, I have a link to an article that Ubuntu released in the show notes. So, Systemd introduced the portable service system. And this is kind of similar to containers. The portable services are a nicer way to manage uh, Chirrut environments with better security, tooling, and behavior. So this is this is actually a beta preview ver- feature that will be available in the upcoming release of System D uh, 239. So this this is pretty interesting if you're whether you're a fan of System D or not. This is definitely something to look into because it has a really poten- like really good potential for the container structure to you know kind of provide a containerization thing to like the fundamental core of a desktop of a desktop uh, so anyway i'm definitely going to be keep keeping an eye on this so in the future if there's some more information about this then you can definitely you know subscribe to the channel to you know keep up to date next up in the show is some announcements from the Huawei company about some some interesting and also not so good things. So first up is the cool news. Huawei is working on a they their an update they say for read only file systems on Linux. So the EROFS or the extendable read only file system, which seems like it could be good and it may even be available for Android devices, but then I think who cares because the next topic is awful. Huawei announced that they will no longer allow unlocking of their bootloaders. So people who would like to buy a Huawei phone, like the Mate 10, for example, and then unlock it and put Lineage OS or something like that on it, will no longer be able to do that after a certain date. So they announced that on May 23rd, 60 days from their announcement, they will no longer be offering unlocking codes for their bootloaders, which means July 23rd, 2018. That's not a a confirmed date. That's just me doing 60 days from May 23rd. Anyway, so they said that it's to... They're they're doing this, uh, breaking the ability to remove... uh, to unlock the bootloader and changing the ROM because... It provides a better user experience and avoids issue caused by ROM flashing. They also made some ridiculous security nonsense complaints as well. Uh, essentially what it is, is they don't want to allow people to install custom ROMs anymore. So that basically means that they're no longer a manufacturer that is worth caring about in terms of anyone who's you know enthusiast for Lineage OS or anything like that. So, that's the awful news, and also kind of makes me not care about the previous news. So, Mm-mm. The FBI has issued a statement that users of particular, well, pretty much all routers would be, you would, wouldn't hurt to do this, but particular routers especially, should reboot their router to fix a potential malware called the VPN filter. This malware allows its controllers to wipe a portion of an infected device's firmware, rendering it useless. It also allows them to ping back to different servers and kind of like use it as a botnet. So the known devices are there's a, there's quite a few, but they're like they're kind they're not that good of devices anyway. So if you do have a device that is on this list, 
you should probably upgrade to a better version anyway, especially with the with the possible malware, because these are the ones that have been found to be affected. But there's there's potential for the other ones as well. Uh, the list will be available in the show notes, so if you want to check that out, that will be that will be there. But so far, it's even like big companies like Linksys, Microtik, Netgear, TP-Link, and others, uh, as well as QNAP. And interesting enough, so the users that are infected can remove the dangerous stage two and stage three components. There's three stages. One is the infection in general. And then two and three are basically allow them to ping back to service to affect even much you know much worse potential. But if you reboot your device or your router, it will mitigate the stage two and stage three parts. However, it will still be affected by stage one, which is super interesting as far as the, the router malware because most of the time when you reboot a router, it will like flash the firmware essentially not exactly but like as far as the way that most infections happen on a router. They're usually in RAM or something like that, so that when you reboot the, the router, it would just clean that out. But in this case, the stage one filter, the stage one vulnerability aspect of the VPN filter actually persists after rebooting. So that's um, very surprising, but and also very scary. So if you are affected by, are you, if, well, if you're not even affected, even if you're not infected, and if you have a router that is on the list, you absolutely should get a new one uh, just in case because it would be much easier to so, uh, solve the problem of being infected than to try to refer, like reflash your firmware you know, often. Now, the, the good thing about it is that the reason why the FBI uh, uh, made this announcement is that if once you fix it, it probably wouldn't happen again because the, uh, the FBI took over the control cluster that controls the stage two and stage three. So you'll no longer can be affected by stage two and three, but stage one still could technically affect you because the the FBI servers don't apply to that. So check out the list and uh, maybe upgrade your router. Definitely reboot it though. Definitely reboot it. Another unfortunate thing was found is that the e-fail vulnerability for PGP can expose PGP encrypted email, including PGP passphrases. So, it's it's uh, as far as security goes, email is pretty much one of the worst possible things as far as security. It's a it was created during a time where encryption was not even a consideration. So, like everything's plain text. So, you know things were put on top of it to provide some kind of encryption method, which was PGP and GPG. So. PGP uses some old encryption methods, and it was found that there's a possibility to circumvent those encryptions and to actually display some of the encrypted content. Now, it can't display absolutely everything, but it can grab pieces and send it off to another place. Like, it can take the content and send it away to another server. So, that is very, very bad potential, you know, to what it could be done. So... What it was found that the the short term mitigation to solve this problem is to disable the displaying of incoming HTML inside of emails. So the most commonly thing done in HTML in emails is to use HTML to send images or like a newsletter. There's like often there's a t there's like a lot of HTML included, 
And because HTML in emails is very limited, it actually uses HTML4, which is very old and very limiting, as I said. But uh, that means that there's some deprecated code potential in HTML as well. So unfortunately, there's also been examples found where even disabling the HTML and external content will still somehow utilize, there's some possibility of utilizing the flaw and displaying even the passphrase of the encryption. So really the only long-term, the only solution really is a long-term solution, which is to fix PGP and, and GPG itself. So hopefully that will be done as soon as possible. And unfortunately, there's there's not really a good side about this particular topic, so um, we're gonna we're gonna leave it there. Purim announces the Pure Key, which is a UB, USB GPG smart card. Now it's a it, this is a partnership with the Nitro Key, and um, what's really cool about this is that the Nitro Key is a competitor to the YubiKey, and the YubiKey unfortunately decided to close their products. So, close the source of their products, I mean. And NitroKey is an open source competitor to the YubiKey. So, the partnership with Purism will allow for a lot of interesting things. Like, they're saying that they're talking about possibility of using the PureKey to decrypt their encrypted disk drives at boot time. And also to provide a way to provide a tamper-evident boot protections. So, that's pretty cool. And uh, I can't. They haven't really given a price to see how much the pure key will be available for, but based on the prices between for the for the Nitro Key's main products, it's roughly about thirty-five to fifty dollars, somewhere around there. Might be a little more, but we don't really know. That's just speculation. So in, anyway, um, I, I'm glad to see Purism is, is continuing to focus on security and privacy. It's always nice. And uh, hurry up with Libra Five. I'm just saying. Please. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on the show, please hit that like button and be sure to subscribe. And also ring that bell or whatever it's called to get notifications when I go live or post new content. If you'd like to support the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, or other ways. You can find out more by going to touchdigital.com slash contribute. Including ordering the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to touchdigital.com slash Linux is Everywhere. Or touchdigital.com slash Linux is Everywhere EU for the European version. Well, that's a European shipping version. If you'd like some more Linux podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux by going to destinationlinux.org. Just a reminder... There won't be an episode next week because I'll be at Self this weekend, but you could follow the channel on social media networks or whichever one you prefer to keep up to date with all the various different things where you're happening at Self, as well as some videos that I'll be posting and notifications of when we're going to go live for Destination Linux and things like that. So you can find out information about that at tuxdigital.com contact. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with Tux Digital, And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux. <laughs>